Welcome to episode two of the Baseball from Home podcast. I'm Connor McKnight. With me is Joe Brand. As always, we're brought to you by the House of L podcast network. We love being here. It is a live podcast, socially distanced in the beautiful studio of the House of Joe Brand. That's right. We can actually see each other now during the podcast. I don't know if this is a step up. Probably? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, just, just the fact that we can... Um see each other so closely instead of through a screen True. because that, that took some getting used to. I'm digging I, it. I'm digging it. felt like I was talking into a microphone, but also you last time, and now it's like we're actually having a conversation. I have to remember the, like my pre-pandemic protocols. Like I, I showered because I had to go see people that I don't live with kind of thing. Otherwise, it's very difficult for me to remember how to interact with other people. Well, congratulations on showering. Thank that, you. that was quite a humble brag. I, I really appreciate that. We love being here. Happy to have you as well. I've been covering baseball for radio stations in Chicago the last 10 years. Joe's been broadcasting minor league baseball for the prior nine. He covers the White Sox and the Cubs for WGN Radio. You can find us both on Twitter. I'm at C1McKnight. He is at Joe underscore brand one. Every show we cover the Cubs, we cover the White Sox. No particular order. We'll kick it around the league to some of the biggest storylines as well. Mostly we're going to talk about COVID. Joe! We got some headlines for the day? Yeah, well, how about it, Connor? The last time we talked, we thought that Kyle Hendricks was not human. He is indeed human. And, uh, boy, Lucas Giolito really bailed out our whole discussion of the rotation, but there's still some things to comment about that. And, boy, I hope we can keep doing some more of these because the Marlins might have screwed it for all of us, huh? Yeah, it is, uh, it's a rough place when the decision makers are Marlins shortstops throughout baseball. None of this would be possible without David Hochberg and all the fine folks at Team Hochberg. Not only would I not have a roof over my head, but they sponsor the House of L Network and our show, too. I had Team Hochberg wrap up the mortgage on my house in Wicker Park. I could not have picked a better partner throughout that entire process. They were fantastic. Call them at 855-56-DAVID or head to the website 56david.com. Homeside Financial is an equal housing lender, NMLS 112 So, Joe, let's get into it. The coin of destiny has spoken, and... I believe that while the team in the worst spot right now is clearly the White Sox, given the record and some of the issues at hand, I think the most pressing issue facing either one of the Cubs or White Sox is actually the Craig Kimbrell issue on the north side of town and what David Ross has to or can't do with his closer and with the uh, with the Cubs rather being rained out in Cincinnati on Thursday night. We don't know if Craig Kimbrell is still going to be the closer. I I think the discussion is up in the air as to what should be done, but I do think I know where David Ross will go next. With the rain out, with the extra time, I don't know that he has another choice but to have to trust Craig Kimbrell one more time with a save opportunity, even though we're only playing 60 games this year. Wasn't David Ross one of the guys that recommended Craig Kimbrell to the Cubs last year? He caught before the bullpen, they sent- man. He caught the bullpen session that sold him on the whole move. So determining on how far David Ross continues to use Craig Kimbrell as the closer, I mean, we could really see him doubling down on this, but how many times are we going to bring up? It's a 60-game season. There's not really much room for error. There's not enough time for these guys to figure things out. I will say I saw some things from Craig Kimbrell that day against Cincinnati that we did when he played the White Sox because that was a totally promising outing. It was fine. 
It was fine. It was fine. But it I'll was he was still doing well, okay. things. So I'll give you this. Fine relative to what he looked like well, last yes, season. Well, yes, of course. Because of last season was a hot dumpster fire. That was fine. I'll and then, give you that. And then we see another hot dumpster fire uh, earlier in the <laughs> so, week. So hot. So hot dumpster fire. But I, I don't mean to be Mr. Optimistic, but I guess you do see some kind of progression. I feel like Nick Castellanos playing halfway or rather – Halfway down the baseline between yeah. third and home, that had to have played a part too, sure. because that that inning just kind of snowballed. He wasn't completely offline right at the get go. He yeah. made some decent pitches. I think he got the first out. He got yeah, he did. He got worse as he went. I'll give you that. I I get it. Th- this is a what a sixteen million dollar closer. We're not expecting him to be okay. You don't get David Ross said he had six days off and he just had to knock the rust. See, off. I don't like, like that. You don't. I don't like that either. Because how many how many days off did he have before the White Sox game? More than a year. Not a fan. I, I am not a fan of that level of reasoning. That said, if I were da- if I were in David Ross's shoes, I would throw Craig Kimbrell another save opportunity. Because it's a little bit like, if you want to go listen to the season preview that I did for the House of L podcast, feel free. Uh, highly recommend it. But the fact is, is that Cubs bullpen up and down is a trip, man. At best, you're praying. Who's the most reliable reliever in the Cubs bullpen? Is it Rowan Wick? Jeremy Jeffress? That's I, 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 The first name that comes to mind is Jeffress. And what have we seen from him? A very, very limited sample. It's, it's a rebound kind of guy. You know the deal they picked him up on. Rowan Wick was playing infield like four years ago. It, it, this is not an established pitcher. So I, I think what could be happening here is that the Cubs bullpen really only works if Craig Kimbrell is able to get the final three outs of any given ball game. He has to be hidden in the ninth inning. I, that shouldn't make any Cubs fan comfortable because what I think is even worse about th- than that situation is having watched Kimbrell throw and not seeing any of his pitches be dangerous. The knuckle curve was not dangerous. Guys spit on it. The fastball didn't bite. It didn't have that Kimbrell movement. The velo was fine. But that guy has to get a clean inning in order to get out of it because of the walk rate. Because guys aren't tempted by some of the stuff he throws up there anymore. I'm okay with... See, I I don't want to put a number on how many more save opportunities Craig Kimbrell gets before he's just relieved of that role. 34 pitches against Cincinnati. 19 fastballs, 15 curves. You mentioned it. Nobody swung at that curveball. Not a single soul. My dad was a fireman. When he would get called for overtime. Oh, take me home. This is beautiful. <laughs> when, we, when he got called for overtime, this is how the system would work. If you worked, if you got called in overtime and you said yes, you got raised on the totem pole. The more you said yes, the higher you'd go on the totem pole. It didn't matter how long you were there, what rank you were. That's how the system worked. The moment you said, I can't work overtime or I can't work a day, you went to the bottom of the totem pole. Oh, man. And it constantly rotated like that. That's what I think David Ross should do with this entire bullpen. <laughs> I it, it, put him in a situation. It doesn't matter where you're at, but the better the better you do, the more high leverage situation you get placed in the following or whatever the next opportunity. I it's, it makes as much sense as anything else with the alarm bells going off, with the fire alarms going off on <laughs> nice, Craig Kimbrell nice. as it is. Oh, that didn't take that. long. Delete that. Uh, no, don't delete. It. Leave it in. Leave it in. I there there isn't a guy that I want to go take the reins in this Cubs bullpen, right? There's there's not – Jeremy Jeffers can get the job done, sure. Rowan Wick could get you saves, sure. But there's nobody that I'm, I'm clamoring for 
that needs to move into that spot. And given some of the work that we've seen from guys like Tapera, who, you know, fine, got out of an inning okay, but otherwise let up some hits, from James Norwood, from Dwayne Underwood, from Dylan Maples. I mean, all these guys that had been hoped on, mostly failed starters with the exception of Dylan Maples. I mean, everybody gets a chance to start in the minor leagues. You know that. But right. really, Maples has been a reliever for a good long while now. There's pure stuff there, but there's no command. There's no harnessing whatsoever. I, I think what that leads you to then is is having to be quicker with your decisions in the bullpen. And I don't know whether David Ross is going to have the ability to find out about these guys because of how many relievers he has. I mean, everybody's dealing with more pitchers than they've ever had on a roster before. Ross has never had this many. He's never managed before. But he's got a, a choice issue, too. I mean, I don't know how you look around. Maples has been optioned out to, you know, the the taxi squad or whatnot, but how you choose those next innings for the next handful of relievers to maybe take the next step, not to fireman number one, but to guy who gets the next overtime shift, right? I mean, you're looking for a seventh inning jam kind of guy at this point. And and that's what I'm kind of saying is give somebody an opportunity to show themselves once they do it, then move them up on the, the, ranking, the ranking scale of high leverage situations. But now are you saying – what David Ross should anticipate, failure more, so have somebody warming up as soon as Craig Kimbrell I, faces the first guy? I think he kind of has to. I, I think so, too. You know, I think he kind of has but to. But here's the other thing, Connor. There's nobody in those ballparks. Right. And those pops of the mitt oh, become dude. a lot louder when you know no one's in the ballpark and you know someone is coming for your spot on the mound. Uh, a few years ago, Kane County Cougars are playing the Clinton Lumber Kings. Kid had a perfect game going on nearing 100 pitches. They weren't sure if they can keep him, should keep him out or not. And the pitching coach said specifically, I am not warming up anybody in the ninth because nobody's in this ballpark, I mess with and I don't want to mess with his head. And, and that's got to be intensified like crazy. And the, the other thing I'll say is this year we talk about 2.7. It is so much more dangerous for pitchers, especially starters, but also relievers, because you talk about 2.7 equals one win or one loss. A starter's outing is worth 2.7 more times than it normally is. Yeah. A batter comes up to the plate, maybe has a rough day. They're not thinking of that being intensified as much, but the starters are and the relievers are. So they're put in a more difficult spot. They really are, and I don't know. I mean, and we're seeing this, too. I think across baseball, you know, the, the math will bear it out. Well, I should make a caveat. Like, all of this will be small sample size stuff, right? Like, no, even the, even the brightest sabermetrician is going to look back at this year and go, huh, I don't know. <laughs> no, nobody's going to have a, an equation to, to wrap this one up. What an eloquently put way by the greatest saying. I, I don't know. But, but we do have a little bit more baseball to play before I go ahead and say the bats are ahead of pitching or the pitching's ahead of it, you know, with that kind of stuff. What we have seen is a little bit more offense than I think a lot of people expected. Um, I think we've seen worse pitching. Just kind of across, I think if you look at walk numbers, I think if you look at raw strike ball totals, I, I think that kind of tallies up. Um, what that all adds up to is it's impossible to look through all of that mass, all of that noise, and go, oh, okay, this guy's actually had a pretty decent work. He gets to go move up now, even through the seeing eye single that gets through that kind of stuff. Like These are the decisions that have to be made, and I, I don't know... 
you know, you, you still have to David Ross still has to get his club out of a seventh inning jam. And you know Kimbrell can't do that for you, right? He's not this versatile guy who can go down to another spot. He's got to save that clean ninth. He's got to hold on to those last three outs and pray that he's there while also finding this this extra guy, whether that's, you know, Wick or, you know, the other Wick when he comes off the, the injured list, if he ever does, and whomever else is out there. It's This is a very tough spot for the Cubs to be. And the best thing about where the Cubs are at is that they're hitting the baseball, even without Chris Bryant hitting the baseball. I... I'm a little stunned to see just how well Wilson Contreras is hitting. Um, but man, does he look like every bit the player that uh, that a lot of people have talked about coming into this league and coming into his own. You were saying earlier this week how, how much he looks locked in, and I just feel like this is really going throughout the entire Cubs lineup. I won't say entire, but the majority of it. I, I can't include Chris Bryant at the situation. But these guys do not care where the ball goes. They just hit the ball with authority. I mean, you're seeing guys like Nico Horner, Steven Souza Jr. Yeah. putting it the opposite way. They just want to barrel up the baseball. Uh, before we move on from the pitching. I no, talk, no, no. I talked to, uh, you know Alex Cohen, right? The I Iowa do. Cubs. Yeah, I love Alex. So the guy they brought up today, Colin Rea, he likes him more than Dylan Maples, and kind of the reasons that you were saying. He's aware of the strike zone. <laughs> he said, okay, here's here's what Alex Cohen had to say, who had, who saw a ton of Dylan Maples and Colin Rea last year. If it's a younger team, you keep Maples and you throw him every other day just to see if he can establish a rhythm, which is what he was best at here. For a team that is contending in a short season, I'd probably go with Rea for that roster. So... <sighs> That's the gamble that David Ross is dealing with on a daily basis. We thought that the bullpen last year was so damaging for the Cubs. That's because the offense was so inconsistent. And, and the rotation, for that matter, too. Yep. This year, out of the gate, we'll see how long it lasts, but the bullpen, or I'm sorry, the rotation and the offense has been stellar. You cannot count on both those things lasting. Rather, you can't even count on one of those things lasting throughout the entire 60-game season, let alone both. So there is going to be more drama, more high-leverage situations for this bullpen, which is why I just kind of think you keep a roundabout. You're probably not going to see it. But, again, how many opportunities do you give Craig Kimbrell? And I get it. He's been given one this year. Yeah. But you, you can't hide it. You can't hide it when, when that's him out of the gate. And, again, I really I, – I guess I liked what he had to throw against the Sox more than you did uh, earlier I, in the year. But I, I think so, but I get what you're. I, I get well, where you're looking. Stone at. was talking about how he what he lowered his arm angle. I he mean, had, he just controlled yeah. everything so much more. He just seemed so much more like himself. I get it. He's not going to throw as hard as he used to, but there was just so many misses, and by a large margin. I mean, he's hitting guys. He's he's throwing it way out of the strike zone. I mean, that's something you can't have for your high-leverage closer. No, not even a little bit. Um, I, I have found, you know, obviously the offense has been a bright spot for the Cubs, but there's three hitters I want to talk about. Uh, well, two hitters and, and one guy on defense. Um, Ian Happ is playing incredibly well. And, you know, I, I find Ian Happ to be one of the more interesting guys on this team because he is so tightly wound. And yet, he's the first guy to tell you that he is a tightly wound player. Um, I remember talk, talk, talking to him a couple of years ago, and he, you know, asked him like, you know, why don't you play like Javi does, or like, do you do you like the emotion that gets displayed, right? It was part of this conversation about, oh, where is the game going right now, and change the game and all this stuff, right? And Ian's was like, I would love to be able to play that way, but I can't, 
Because if I go up there, I, I go all the way down when it goes bad. Like, down into the deepest pits of darkness and depth, right? It's just this awful, awful place for him. So he's got to keep it at a level 5 his entire season. Can't get too high, can't get too low. And I think it's amazing to, like, to know that about yourself. That said, Hap's always been a really interesting profiled hitter to me. Because while he can't hit the high fastball in the past, when he does, you know, he can't hit it. But when he does connect, he makes he hits it for pop. I mean, there's some power to that swing. And we've seen, you know, if you watch White Sox broadcasts, Steve Stone does a great job of pointing out just how much. I mean, watch, watch Lucas Giolito. The fastball's top of the zone. The changeup's down and away. That's baseball now, right? Curveball substituted for changeup with a lot of guys. But if you can hit that high fastball, guys like Nico Horner hits it. Ian Happ's hitting it right now. Jason Kipnis has popped a couple of them. If you can cover that, that offense looks a lot more dangerous as opposed to your 17 Cubs, your 18 Cubs, which are, you know, swinging at low profile, down bottom third kind of stuff and hoping to pop that for power. Now it looks like there are a couple of swings in that lineup that can cover the top third of the zone. It makes them much more dangerous. Ian Happ just seems like Mr. Professional, and it goes to what you have said. Um, I knew someone that that knew him in college, and he always talked about how Ian Happ is a very happy-go-lucky, easygoing guy, and he just never shows that on the field. Uh, the other game, he made a great catch in center field. Yeah. Ryan Dempster's on the call, and he, he breaks it down a little bit. He, he kind of takes over on J.D.'s spot, and he goes, oh, look at Ian Happ showing that smile like he always does. He's yeah. just deadpan face. Um, I, of course – when Ian Happ can connect on those high fastballs, he hits it with authority because he's just got such a great short, compact swing. And it, it just seems so, again, professional for him to fit into those spots. But the thing is, we talk about the lineup being deep, like you said, Steven Souza Jr. and Jason Kipnis. I mean, if these guys all hit, we're not talking about moving around defensive strategies anymore like what we were talking about right. the designated hitter. I can't believe we're, I'm bringing this up again, but this whole Kyle Schwarber out of the DH role, you continue to be right with that. I, I He might be a guy that – and I'm not – believe me, I saw Kyle Schwarber play his first professional game, okay, I should say, in full season ball in left field, and that was some raw left field. Captain faceplant? Yeah. I mean, uh, he, he was basically doing the Macarena out there. He got better. He did. and he, But he, he clearly was – overmatched in terms of hitting for the league. That's why he rose through the minors so quickly. But but that is a guy I think plays on momentum. And if he's doing well at the plate, he's going to feel incredibly confident out there in left field, especially if he's developed a little bit more chemistry with guys like Ian Happ in center field. He rose up through the minors with Albert Almora Jr. Well, kind of, somewhat. But he's been playing with him for a while. So that, again, it, it, it'll base down on how well these guys can hit. Clearly, it's going to make David Ross's job easier in terms of setting up the lineup, but also defensively, because if somebody's going to be able to come through, I mean, David Bodie is once again showing that he deserves to be here. Straight up, I I don't know I don't know what to make of David Bodie. <laughs> like I like every every couple of years, there's just a guy, and I, I can't pretend to be some like big player dev guy or whatever. But you, I I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't know what he does. I like him a lot. I want him to succeed. I find him a very enjoyable guy. I have no idea if he's good or not. You thought he was going to be one of those Cub heroes forever after the Grand Slam. 
Oh, yeah, he's great. Years, you know, but sure, like a, like a Tony Campana to Cub yeah. hero where fans are like, where is Tony Campana in his, in his like, dirty you know, jersey? I want all of that. I have no idea what to make of him. Uh, I've got a soft spot, in, soft spot in my heart for David Bodie. I, I can't believe how many minor league references I've made today, but my first year in the minors was his second year in single A ball of three years. And he was That's usually not good. He was an underperforming minor league player, not prospect, minor league yeah. player. The next year, he's for South Bend. We go to South Bend. We see him. I'm like, oh, man, this is this guy's last road. All of a sudden, he's a prospect. All of a sudden, he's in the fall league. All of a sudden, he gets called up. Like, everything, he just exceeded his expectations. And I got to go to his work ethic because that's a guy that works harder than anybody. There was a great article in The Athletic a few years back about uh, what he had, the, the pitch um, the pitch machine firing grounders to him, and he would yeah. just block him, and he was just working on I mean, yeah. He's an angle change guy too. He had been. He's one of the guys who who came up. We talked to him about it. Um, one of the guys who came up and was trying to chop down on the ball, that kind of thing. You know, hit liners, that sort of stuff, sprayed all fields, and changed the angle a little bit. I wouldn't call him. I wouldn't call his swing now a severe launch angle. To, you know, it's not Justin Turner or anything, but it does have more lift in it now than it did. And, you know, you can see him paying dividends. And that's yeah, and that's showing how, when you hit the ball with authority, how great things can happen. Maybe next pod, uh, Monday morning's pod, I want to talk a little bit about Wilson Contreras and his ability in framing the baseball. And I think we might need a couple more games to make sure that what we think we see is actually what we're seeing uh, and not just a couple of big strike zones that have benefited both him and Cubs pitchers. But Wilson Contreras, we'll just wrap it here with the Cubs stuff, has been a whole lot better defensively. So if he's catching the way he is and hitting the way he is, I don't know what a 60-game MVP looks like, but you know we can start to have some conversations, I guess, if it's fun. Let's get to the White Sox side of things. It has been a disappointing turn, first turn, through the White Sox rotation. Only one pitcher made it out of the fourth inning. That was Dallas Keuchel. Everybody else was very, very bad. Reynaldo Lopez was hurt, and all of a sudden, the pitching depth that everyone thought the White Sox had going into a 60-game season has completely evaporated, and they are now a normal team in terms of the weapons that they can bring to bear that used to be starters and that might be able to help you out and throw some more firepower out of the bullpen. That is alarming to me, but I don't know that it's the most alarming thing to White Sox fans or really baseball observers at this point. It's not been a healthy squad. And whether that's Aloy Jimenez or Ronaldo Lopez or Nick Madrigal not being there, not that he's not healthy, but he's just not there and not playing. I don't know that the White Sox have their best guys in the spots they need to be in in these first four, five, six games of the season. It's funny how after we recorded the pod on Sunday, we talked about Reynaldo Lopez and, and the concerns and all that, and, oh, where was Dylan Cease? Where was Carlos Rodon? And then they both come out, and again, <laughs> <They're bad. laughs> yeah, it goes downhill. Um, again, don't mean to be Mr. Optimistic. I still liked some things I saw from Dylan Cease. I still like some things from Carlos Rodon, who, again, underperformed opposed to the previous time he threw. Right. Milwaukee looked great. I mean, left up a couple pitches to, what, Keston Hira and, and Christian Yelich. But yeah, Hira got him good. He's yeah. going to be a good but, player. But, yeah, and I mean, like, that's the Milwaukee Brewers. Yeah. Um, I will say this. Cleveland is surprising me in terms of the rotation. And those guys, 
what, do they have nine Vladimir Guerreros out there that just don't care about the strike zone? They, they just hit wherever the hell the ball is thrown? They're, they're a very good lineup, and I, I would love to pin down one of the math guys for the Cleveland Indians, you know, one of the nerds out of the nerdery, and force them to explain to me all of the philosophy behind acquiring the switch hitters that they have. Like, clearly they think they know something, I would love to know what that is. I want that explained to me. I mean, the benefits of having switch hitters up and down the lineup is right. obvious, especially when you've got a three-batter minimum for relievers. But I, I think there's something more to it. I think they're sniffing something else because they got a lot of them. I think, too, what's concerning to me about Cease and Rodon is that I'm I'm with you on Cease in that the, the consistent being up in the strike zone is less alarming for me because it's a thing you're doing wrong. Not many things you're doing wrong. You know what I mean? And so when a pitcher has something like that happen to him, uh, specifically he's young with good stuff, I go, okay, this is a workable thing. This is That's the kind of stuff you saw Lucas Giolito fix from start one to start two. Consistent, consistently bad is not so bad. Yeah. Where I worry about Carlos Rodon, I wrote it down here somewhere. Where I worry about Carlos Rodon is that that slider of his – which was one of the most devastating pitches in his draft and for the next couple of years. That slider wasn't swung at at all. I mean, he walked two guys with the slider, and the homer he gave up to Santana was on the slider. That should be a death pitch. That should that should kill people. <laughs> and instead, he's getting killed on it. That's worrisome. Um, what else can you do with the death pitch other than die? But, <laughs> yes, okay. Uh, I, I do agree with you, but... I'm going to give him a mulligan on the Santana home run because the previous pitch was a fastball low and in, nowhere near a strike, and Santana got screwed on that call. That's true. And then the next pitch, he doesn't want to make that mistake again, and he's just all over it. The thing I don't like about Carlos Rodon's slider, at least in that last start, I felt like he was throwing it too early. That should be be his strikeout pitch. That should be the put-him-away pitch. It just seemed like he was trying. He was trying to master it, but once they realized, hey, you're going to miss low. You know, you're not. It's not as devastating as, as what I think it is. It's easier for them to lay off it, and then all of a sudden you're behind in the count one two or one zero oh, two zero, oh, and then he's all of a sudden in this huge hole. He can't get himself out of. It's interesting you brought that up. I've been thinking about this for a little bit, and I don't want to ascribe like this to anything that went wrong for either Cease or Rodon or uh, uh, Giolito in his first start. But do you think that because it's such a short season and the guys, if they make all their trips through the rotation, they get like 12 starts, something like that, right? Depending on, you know, skip days and whatnot. We've, we've heard so much about Lucas Giolito's work with James McCann last year, right? And this, you know, James was so good at finding that what's working and what's not. And even if he'd go one time through the lineup where he's trying to fork that slider, trying to fit that curveball in or whatever, and McCann goes, no, 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 it's, it's fastball change today. You got fastball change today. That's what we're going with. I wonder if because there are fewer starts and the pressure is so amped up, the pitchers and catchers, that the battery are going to be too quick to bail out on a particular pitch that isn't working on a day or to try and find that little, you know, that magic elixir, that one-two punch, that guys who otherwise are working with four and might need two or three quote-unquote average sliders or splitters or whatever to find the grip to find the feel aren't going to be willing to go deeper into counts and find that pitch that they're going to become a little more restricted in in their usage 
because they feel the pressure of their next start being five days away, and that could be it for them. So, you, so you're saying they are reluctant to eliminating pitches? I wonder. I I, I wonder if they'll be too quick. To, okay, to reluctant to not eliminating pitches. Yeah, to scrap a game plan. They're, they're gonna be too quick to scrap the game plan and just go. Okay, we got to Nope, just throw your best two pitches and that's it. I mean, that's tough. I, I don't know. It'll be something to watch for. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it seemed to work for Lucas Giolito, but that's because he just kind of came to his senses and, and realized what had been working for him last year. Um, the difference with him, I thought, I don't know, maybe nerves were involved with it too because, okay, his fastball command wasn't incredibly better than his last outing. No, it wasn't. But the difference was you got somewhat of a borderline pitch compared to a pitch that there's no way somebody's stringing at, swinging at. Uh, I think this was Dempster calling it on one of the last Cubs broadcasts. You don't want to go ball to ball, meaning it's a ball as it comes out of the hand and it's a ball when it gets to the mitt. You want to either go ball to strike or strike to ball. That's what was different with Lucas Giolito in that outing. I, I don't know. That, that is a, that's a good question. That's something to look forward to. Um, with Dylan Cease, the thing was he had too many pitches that weren't working. And, and the one that was was a changeup that – Hey, if guys saw it in the zone, take a hack at it. If it's not, lay off it, and all of a sudden, you know, you're ahead in the count. His changeup is not Lucas's. Right. It's a, it's a fine pitch um, when the fastball's in the strike zone, and if mm-hmm. it's not, then you just, you can, like you say, if it's, you can tee up on it if it's there and let it go if it's not. I, I know that a lot of White Sox fans are mortified seeing Nicky Delmonico bat and clean up and <laughs> playing as much as he has. That might be putting it lightly. It really is. And I understand it. I do. I mean, this is there are 60 games. Ricky Renteria has taken heat for his lineups since he started doing this job on the south side. It's kind of a tradition like no other, right? But at the same time, I, I would point to you this. Yeah, it's true that Delmonico has taken a lot of hacks. And unfortunately, he's come up in some big spots, right? And he's not the only... You know, Adam Engel has taken a lot of at-bats as well. But... The White Sox signed some big names to lengthen lineups. Yasmani Grandal, Edwin Encarnacion being two of them. And while Grandal's at-bats have looked okay, he's not lost, Encarnacion has not. I don't know that he's quite got his head screwed on at this point or loving what he's seeing coming out of the pitcher's hand. I would argue that if the, if the depth and really first division kind of guys like Yasmani Grandal and Edwin Encarnacion were hitting a little bit better. There's a couple of spots where Delmonico doesn't have the game on the line, where Engel doesn't have the game on the line. I I think what's going to be more important, because I trust the White Sox to put Nit Madrigal in this lineup at some point here in the next four or five days, and assuming Eloy Jimenez is healthy and bounces back, everything A-OK and plays a couple games in a row from the collision out in left field, you're good there too. But... It's going to come down to Grandal and Encarnacion a lot more often than it is Delmonico, even if Renneria is writing Delmonico's name in the lineup more often than Sox fans would like. The two games that, okay, the doubleheader sweep that they lose to Cleveland, those are one-run games, and the Sox make those games towards the end. And I heard the argument, yeah, all right, well, if Delmonico's not hitting cleanup or if Delmonico's not in the lineup, you get another bigger bat in there, all of a sudden it's the Sox game. There's equal blame to go all around for those losses, the rotation with, with Cease and Rodon didn't get off to good starts. I mean, the only blame there's no given to is is the bullpen, who, boy, what a great bullpen uh, it is to watch the White Sox. With your argument about Grandal and Encarnacion, here's the numbers I got from fan graphs. Like you mentioned in your email, you don't, you're not as worried about Grandal as you are with Encarnacion. Not as much, no. Right. I'm with you there, 
his walk rate right now, again, this is Fangraphs, 17.6, which last year was 17.2. His strikeout rate is above 40. Sure. Um, again, small sample size. Encarnacion hasn't walked once. Right. And his strikeout and rate is above 40, too. three at-bats he could have taken walks on. Oh, so yeah. He's gotten himself out. So, basically, Edwin Encarnacion's only role in this lineup is DH. You can sprinkle him there, there at first. There are those who would make, and I'm not one of them, but there are those who would make the argument that Encarnacion is just as good, if not better, than Jose Abreu at first base. Really? There are those that would make the argument. I guess I haven't seen him play first in a while, but yeah, I mean. Nobody has. Like, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know who's, you know what I mean? But, like, these are smart people who are arguing this, and I, really, if it comes down to it, though, if, if the defense at first base is coming down to whether the White Sox lose, win or lose a game, like, there are so many other things that went wrong. Right, no, 100%. <laughs> so many other things. But, but, so what I'm getting at is we ta- we've been talking about the depth of the White Sox lineup. I mean, I'd rather see James McCann catching and Grandal DHing. I'd rather see Aloy Jimenez DHing and, and maybe sprinkle out and Engel and, and Delmonico and left and right. I, I mean, I don't know how much room for error there is for Edwin Encarnacion. I like him on this team. You need a big swing like him. Absolutely. You need I, I like his presence in the in the uh, dugout. He's always smiling. He's with all those other young guys all the time. I think he's a great mentor. But, yeah, I, I would totally agree that you give the pass to Grandal more than you do Encarnacion. But let's also just take a step back and marvel at what the Cleveland Indians pitching staff did. Yeah. You got Adam Pletko, Aaron Savale, Zach Plesac, four and, or I'm sorry, 2-0, a 180 ERA. This was this past series. 24 strikeouts and one walk. That's a lot. There's got to be some credit there. There I, has to be some credit there. I think you're right. I think of the three of them, I thought Savale got away with most. I would, too. Um, Plesak's performance, and, and maybe this is on me. Maybe I just didn't catch enough Zach Plesak starts last season for the Indians. I know he had a handful, but that was unexpected. I mean, that kind of um, – I, I was going to say command, but what it really is is guts. I mean, yeah. the the choice to throw what he did, where he did, when he did was was kind of ballsy to me. So tip of the hat to you, sir. But I, I do think that, you know, as it, as it comes to the White Sox pitching um, in relation to the rest of that team, I, I think it's probably good that the core seems to be fine, right? Elo Jimenez seems to be fine. Tim Anderson is... Can we just talk about Tim Anderson for a second? Yes, please, let's. I, you know, it's the a dude baseball wins podcast. A, let's dude, do that. Can we do that? The dude wins a batting title last year, and everybody, myself included, goes, well, you know, that's great, and good for Tim. I love Tim Anderson. Like, watching that guy come out of his shell, going through everything he's gone through in life to become the – the guy he wants to be in the game. And he never changed his demeanor. Too. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. The guy should be applauded from coast to coast, truly. Where's the butt? Everybody says, ah, oh, he hits 335. He's great. Won a batting title. Tell you what, though. Be excited, White Sox fans. But if he's just 75% of what he was last year, you still got a damn good player. Tim has clearly heard all of that and said, to hell with it. I don't have to be 75%-ish of anything i'll just be tim anderson i love watching him go to the opposite field there is to me fewer joys in baseball fewer greater joys in baseball than watching a guy open up going first to third tim 
Tim hits second base, or you know, it's the two steps before second, because that's when you make a cut. And that gear just materializes and becomes. He is so fast and so fun to watch there. And if he uses the opposite field the way he seems to have in the first handful of games here, I, I don't know that there's a lot of reason he can't hit 290 and be that kind of guy. And I'm saying 290 because it's 60 games, and I don't know what the hell's going to happen with any of them. I'm, I'm glad you bring up Tim Anderson going to the opposite field. I looked this up on fan graphs again. Our, our great friends that do everything for us. Obviously, you can't see if you're listening, but here's his spray chart from last season. The blue dots are fly balls. There are a lot of fly balls. Yeah. You go to a combination of last year and this year, there are a lot less blue dots, which were fly balls, and there are a lot more red dots, which are line drives. The line drives are everywhere. It's not just to the pole side. It's to the opposite side. Steve Stone brought it up in one of the first games. He's just so more inclined to just throw his bat at those outside pitches, especially the outside slider. He was always reluctant to swing at it because he just wanted to pull the ball so much, but now he's using all parts of the strike zone, and I think that was the biggest thing. Can he stay consistent on it from last season? I think he's proving that right now. Do you like him at leadoff, though? (laughs) You know... Tim's I mean, the very, guy's not walking. I love him to death. Tim's very swinging. He loves swinging. Just loves swinging. No, I don't love him at leadoff. And I, Do you like him at two? I, that's fine for me. I agree. But but more than anything else, I want Yoan Mankata getting every at-bat he possibly can, and if that comes out of the leadoff spot, so be it. I, I don't care. I I think – no, I, I if, if I were the manager of the White Sox, which wouldn't happen in a million years, yes. Yoan Mankata one, Tim Anderson two – because he he's just he sees more pitches he walks a little more he's got more discipline and he he's I know this past off season he was working on stealing more bases and you get that you get that contact with number two from Tim right behind him and you got speed on the bases I get it it's your old fashioned lineup with a couple of contact hitters and then a big bopper right but it it, it just moves everyone down and I get it you're just swapping those two guys probably not going to make that world of a difference but. That's what I would go with just because that's what I grew I'm, up knowing baseball I'm was. not a huge, you know, like speedy leadoff guy. Like Juan, Juan Pierre has no place really in the game anymore. Right. You know, Juan's a great guy. But but we're also I'm also saying this because they hit the ball. Like, no, if they're not hitting the ball, I get it. So and that's the thing. I'm I'm with you there. I don't mind a contact oriented hitter out of the leadoff spot if he's working counts if he's seeing more pitches because for me it's not necessarily you know can you take a well-constructed at bat every time in the leadoff spot it's see a few more pitches it's it's literally don't let that guy get a two pitch out to start the ball game I hate that and I know that starters love it so don't let him do it and there's a way to control that and it's putting a guy like Yoan Mankata at the top of the lineup. I, I mean, those. that's just, you have the numbers, we have the science, we can make it better, stronger, and faster, you know? One more point in the lineup. Uh, I was curious because Luis Robert just hangs out at the number seven spot. I, yeah. I, you know, do you remember where Aloy Jimenez was batting last year when he first came into the league? I would imagine it was seven. I mean, it was like five and six. Oh, yeah, no, you're right. No, so you're I, right. I, I had to look it up, but that's what confuses me because Aloy Jimenez did not have the start that Luis Robert did and Ricky kept him there. Yeah. Luis Robert is showing some fantastic things, and I can't wait to talk about Luis Robert. Which, Let's do it now. Okay. Let's but, just and, do it and now. And that's the thing. He's, he's still hanging around seven, so this whole protecting the young guy 
I, I don't get the argument if, and it might be one or two spots up in the lineup, but he didn't do it with Aloy last year. Yeah, you know, that's interesting you bring it up. And thanks for the hip check, too, because it, it needs to be done. Aloy Jimenez was there in, in five and six and trusted to do so. I wonder if it's the perception of Luis Robert as, albeit he's young, as a more well-rounded bat than Aloy Jimenez. I wouldn't be surprised, and I'm guessing here a little bit, but, you know, you and I have talked to Ricky. I mean, we kind of understand a little bit the, the process. I wouldn't be surprised at all if he's willing to put more of the power profile with a little bit more strikeout, not that Robert doesn't have strikeout because that's the one wart on his game right now, but move the more well-rounded bat toward the bottom because now you're looping things around a little bit. Perhaps there's a little bit of hole in the middle with, with strikeout tendency, you know, your four, five, six kind of thing. And then you're back to a bit of a more speedy, slightly more contact-oriented, definitely line-drive kind of hitter like Luis Roberts seems to be at this point. My God, does he hit the ball <laughs> hard. Uh, it's been it's been so much fun. So yesterday, I mean, there were three games, Cubs, Sox, and the Blackhawks, and trying to get a good grasp on all three – and I kept missing Luis Roberts at bats. Every time I turn it, it's Leori Garcia. I'm like, how did I miss again? I missed it again? I missed it again? I didn't miss his ninth inning at bat. Oh. So I guess uh, White Sox fans thank me. But So I went back and checked today. And uh, he's going against that Zach Plesak slider. He's not off by much. Nope. He's he's right on it. it just timing is just, just a few microscopic centimeters seconds those probably aren't the right integers but you got the point he's so close to it and then in the ninth inning he's got another veteran at bat the other day with the double header what was a game one I mean he just goes he sees that ball low and away out of the strike zone bat on ball right field that was impressive as hell. I mean that's that's a veteran at bat from a young young guy I, I don't have an on me right now but Jason Benetti had a great tweet today um all of Robert's hits and Go back to the Fangraphs color-coded system, the right. key. Slider, curveball, change, fastball. I mean, he's hitting it all. He's hit everything. And I, everyone keeps talking about how he's beyond his years in terms of play discipline and, and awareness. I mean, he's showing it. He really, really is. I, uh, My buddy texted me, how good is he? It's like it's such a an easy yet hard question because where is the ceiling for this guy? Because just the combined with the raw talent along with what he is showing he can do and being the most – reliant guy in the outfield for his sixth game in the major leagues. I mean, that ain't hard, but on the White Sox. <laughs> Still, didn't place him in the center field. I mean, well, Adam Engel's there. I take it back. That's a really good center fielder. I, I think it's a great question, how good is he really? And, you know, as we, as we wrap the White Sox portion of the pod and kind of move into the general MLB conversation, the non-COVID MLB conversation, we'll get there. I wonder this. We've seen some baseball now. And what I noticed about watching a couple extra inning games, I, I went back this morning and watched that um, uh, Dodgers-Astros extra innings finish just because I had missed it last night. It felt fine to me. And I'm on record as, as hating the idea of starting a guy at second base to, to end the game. felt fine. It's normalized. It's, it's like, okay, it's everything. I'm so numb to 2020 at this <laughs> point. Like... Everything you can, you been, put the mascot out there and, and it'd know, be like, fine, okay, fine, let's try it out. That's fine. It's fine. South Paul wants to take it's fine. I and and I probably won't be fine with it at the end of the season, right? 
um, and, and I appreciate some of the drama it's brought. But I, I wonder, and what brings me to Luis Robert here, is I wonder what I'll be fine with at the end of the season. Because right now I sit here and think, it'll be 60 games of baseball, and I won't trust any of those 60 games. It will have happened, but there's nothing there I want to trust. I keep going back to, don't, don't forget, over the first 40 to 50 games, over the first 51 games of their careers, Brett Laurie looked like 10 times the player Mike Trout was. That's what 50 games does. That's what 60 games does, right? I mean, this, that's just baseball. And I'm, I'm starting to think, especially with Luis Robert being so top of mind in this town, that I may end up, right or wrong, may end up trusting whatever this season ends up being, if they play all 60, a lot more than I thought I would to start the year. And I'm not really sure why that is. You'll trust Luis Robert? To trust the results. Okay. To trust that what I saw is... I think that's fair, though. I mean, because you're, you're, you've got nothing to compare him to. It's his first year in the majors. Yeah. And, the, and the thing is, I mean, he rose through the minors. He was doing this stuff in the system. He, he hardly had any lulls. So, I mean, yes, we've seen that happen with players before, but I, I think that's fair. Don't beat yourself up for thinking that way, Connor. I, it's weird to have a change, though. You know, I just, like, I it's, it's odd that this... And I wonder if people are feeling the same way, like having had these preconceived notions about what this nonsense was all going to do to your baseball brain, and it's it's odd how quickly my feelings about some of these results, some of the games and some of the processes, have just kind of gone, yeah, okay, well, let's do it that way. Let's see what the hell happens. See, I, I think you bring up a good point because I think a lot of baseball fans are, are feeling so weird about this season, but you just you just got to embrace it. You got to embrace all this weirdness and, and just go with it. I mean, the World Series, if we have it, the World Series is still going to matter. Yes. Players' progression is still going to matter. You're still going to be heartbroken. You're still going to be pumped up about your team. It's it's going to happen. And I, I get it's a small sample size, but but it still happened. Do you, do you feel with the Marlins testing, I don't know, something like 70 guys on their roster positive for, for COVID? It's 19. I shouldn't make light of it. Well, it's no. a serious disease. And I... I I don't I think I'm doing better at living with the cognitive dissonance of, of having the fun watching baseball and knowing that the process Major League Baseball specifically has chosen to take here might be a, a total sham. Um, I think I'm dealing with that better in my head and it's not this crushing thing at the end of the night, you know, when the last West Coast game comes down anymore. But I wake up the next morning and I you know, every headline I see is Probably we're going to have to end up stopping this before 60 games is up. Well, I mean, I, I don't know a baseball fan who's completely convinced that a World Series gets played this year, do you? I, I mean, I'm optimistically cautious, but I think the, but that's main, not sold. the main thing is it's all happening in the East Coast. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're kind of blindsided to it. Um, Sunday night we recorded the pod. Monday morning we released it, and it felt like we were already so outdated. 13 people! Because of everything that went down. I'm like, well, 20 minutes to release the pod. Well, Connor, one one podcast was a lot of fun. Can't wait to do it maybe next year. Um, I, what I don't like about it is how they're just piecing things together as we go. We talked about it on the phone earlier today. Marav Manfred and MLB was, okay, well, uh, let's just have the Orioles and Yankees play each other. We, you know, we, we're not sure what to do. The Phillies already postponed their entire series. Yeah. 
there's going to be, if not one, if not two, if not multiple, there's going to be teams that play less than 60 games. Yes. Uh, one of the Phillies guys or, or somebody from Philadelphia tweeted out that there's a chance that the Phillies would play 57 games in 50. Matt Gelb, I think. Yes, yeah, thank you, thank him. you. 57 games in 56 days. We This was supposed to be fun. Yeah. This was supposed to be yeah. make sense, and it's it's not making too much sense. I, I wonder... You know, if, if looking at this, if it, if it is contained, if, um, you know, let's let's hope that it's a handful of Phillies players and, you know, the 19 or so Marlins that, that were tested. What's stunning to me is that, and, and many people have been over this, so I'm, I'm sorry if it's trot ground, but when you have four players on the Marlins test positive for COVID, you have an outbreak already. That's just the science of this. That's the math of this. If you have four, you should expect 16. They came up with 19 in less than 12 hours. Like, to to have a process that's oriented around letting the players make the decisions prior to the game and getting to choose who they tell, that's horrifying to me. And it should be horrifying to every single ball player who's going to strap it up against that team or fill in that locker room afterward or whatever. That's that's just not okay. And we've learned so clearly in this country. So many people have, have somebody either directly connected to them or one step away that has fallen to this virus. So to just say, well, we'll leave it up to a group text and figure out what we want to leave. That's what my rec league softball team does, Joe. That, that is not how a professional organization with billions of dollars on the line and so many more lives than a rec league softball team attached to it should be making decisions when the science is there for you. It's so frustrating. Well, me. it clearly did more bad than good when they they just wanted to play. They wanted to play. And if, if they avoid playing that game on Sunday, maybe we're not talking about this right now. We, we talk about the, the stand-up job that the Marlins did. I mean, just as recently as Mike Moustakis. I mean, this guy wants to play more than anything. Yeah. He does the right thing. He says he, you know, he sits out. Chris Bryant goes up to him and says, hey, thank you for being honest. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing. These players have to be held accountable. You could tell nobody that you're feeling symptoms, and, and it could never be known. Right. That you were the one that caused the spread, but but they don't want to miss out on their opportunity to help out this team or, or get some playing time. You know These players have to be held accountable, and who's going to hold them accountable? They should, and baseball should hold yes. the decision makers of the Marlins accountable. They should be testing every day, they, is what they it have to be. Here's what struck me, too. And I know that a player, if a player tests positive for COVID and is put on the COVID injured list or the, the COVID sick list, they still get paid, and they should. That said, I wonder if it's. Because it was the Marlins. Name name for me the highest paid player on the Marlins. Urania? Yeah, I, maybe. I think it's Wei Yen Chen, whose $16 million got released or something like that, right? I mean, it's just that there, there aren't. What I'm saying is. There, there aren't many. It's the Maybe Paul Severino, the play-by-play the play guy. It's the Marlins, right? It's the Marlins. Nobody's getting paid there. And everybody on that team is okay, you know, trying to make their way in Major League Baseball for the first time. If you have four Yankees who all test for this. Jonathan VR, by the way. Oh, I, my God. I didn't realize. Eight million, he, right? Jonathan VR, eight, ten, yeah, something like yeah, that. Yeah, 82. Well, yeah, eight million, 200,000. Yeah, wow. Good for him. Brandon Kinsler on the Marlins. Okay, continue. That's right. He's supposed <laughs> to close games for them. Pick him up and finish. Yeah, right. So you, you have a bunch of guys trying to make their way in Major League Baseball. 
not just the four guys who had already tested positive, but everybody on that group text who's like, oh, God, we got positive tests. I have to. If I don't play, I'm not going to be on the Marlins forever. I'm trying to make that first contract as a bench guy with the Padres next year, that kind of thing. If this happens to a team that has actually – I want to be careful because the, the blame here is so acute because of what this virus is. But if you have a team that's treating baseball the way it's supposed to be treated, you have – a mix of players, uh, some veterans, some guys who have made their money, some guys who are being paid because they're good at the game and not just getting league average, you know, like minimum deals. You you have this, look at the guys who have opted out. David Price has made his money. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. The guys who have made these choices have financial stability. The 19 Marlins were trying to make their next check. So you're saying if this were to go down with the Yankees, there it wouldn't have happened? I don't think so. I think they can't. That's a fair argument because you know what else when because you were because they're, they're making the decision from a different place. No, I get that. I get that. And and something else you brought up, the group text scenario. How about the guy that is going to get the playing time because he knows that guy is going to be out because he tests positive for COVID. Sure. He doesn't even test positive, or rather, show symptoms or anything. I got a chance to start tomorrow. Exactly. Hell yes. Because you bring up the point, uh, if this were to happen with another team, but. That's, that's a good argument. I, I didn't think about that. I You know, I don't know that it's going to – I don't know that that – Unfortunately, of, we're not going to know until no. it happens again, no. and unfortunately that's what it's going to take. I think it will happen I again. do too. I, how can you not? Look at how look can the you numbers not? and look at look at this country at this point. I mean, this is, this is what we are facing. And in, in a very real way, baseball is choosing to play in the face of and hopefully with the best practices you can adapt to this virus. That said – it, it may not be enough. I mean, the best practices may not be enough here. And, and we may be facing a task that is impossible to complete. Monday felt a lot like, was it March 11th, March 12th, March yeah, 13th? March 12th, Rudy Gobert tested positive. Felt a lot like that. Yeah. And hopefully we don't have to go through that again. Always leaving the pod on an up note. <laughs> That's what we're doing. Uh, I still, I will end the pod every, every time. We could way. bring it down a little more and talk about Dusty Baker yesterday. No, I refuse. The man's his hero. Uh, still, I still think right now the White Sox and Cubs will make the expanded playoff of 16 teams. You still feel the same way? I do. The thing that worries me is the Cleveland Indians. They didn't before. They do now. They've shown some things, and we talk about how much bigger these games are on the schedule. Those are some big games they just picked up on divisional teams that were on paper supposed to be ahead of them in the standings. That's what the White Sox got to do is beat a couple in the division. That is the Baseball from Home podcast for Friday. Thanks so much for listening. We will be back at you Monday morning, hopefully with a couple more games to break down. The weather did not participate for us on this one. Thanks for listening. Appreciate David Hochberg and the House of L Podcast Network. We'll catch you Monday.